0: At this time in our service, we give our attention to the preaching of God's Word. We believe that the Bible is God's Word to us, so it's better than the opinion of men. It is the Word of God to us, so we read God's Word so that we might hear from Him. We preach God's Word so that we might understand it, believe it, and orient our lives to God's Word. We want to hear from the Lord and sit under His Word now. Then will come and read the scriptures for us, and then we'll preach from it together.
1: Good morning. This morning's passage is taken from 1 John, chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. 1 John, chapter 3, verses 11 through 18 is found on page 1022 of the Bibles in front of you. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother is righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life Has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Lord, for your word, for by it we can know you and know ourselves, and we can know how we are to come to you. We pray now that the Holy Spirit himself would come and give us power so that as we hear the word, we might, as your scriptures tell us, not just be hearers of the word, but doers of what it says. Let us not be deceived by simply talking about your word. Let us come to reality by obeying your word and doing what it says. Pray that you would have a transforming effect on us as we consider your word today, that it would be seen in practical and real ways in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you were here last week, you know that we've been through this series in 1 John called Authentic Christianity, and we've been trying to consider what authentic Christianity is and what being an authentic Christian means, what it looks like, what it feels like, what the shape and nature of authentic Christianity is. Last week, we looked at John teaching from chapter 3, 1 John 3, 1 to 10, and it began with that great verse where John said, see What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We said last week that John was astonished and amazed and marveled in thinking about being a child of God, and and not just being called a child of God, but in actually being a child of God. Last week, we went through great lengths to say the reason he was so astonished and amazed and bewildered at that thought is because John knew that none of us we're naturally born children of God. John taught us that by nature we were born into a diabolical home. That we were born children as Paul says of God's wrath, at enmity with God, children of the evil one. By birth we are children of the evil one. By grace we are adopted by the good one. By birth we're born as children of the devil, by grace we're adopted as children of God. And as John began to consider this adoption of God, he was amazed. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John understood that the nature of our relationship with God has now changed because where we were once enemies, we are now children adopted into his family. But understanding that, John understands that this is means there's a further implication to our adoption. That just as our relationship with God has changed through adoption, now through adoption our relationship with one another has changed as well. Because if adoption is true and now God is our Father, that means that all of God's other children are now our brothers and sisters. And if you go, oh, that's just a a religious phrase that people use of calling one another brother and sister, then is it just a religious phrase to call God father? Or is he really father? Because if he's really father, then I'm telling you, you and I are really brother and sister. And if he's not really father, then we're not really brother and sister. But if he is, If you really go, when I say God is my father, I mean that in the realest sense, then I'm telling you, in that same reality, you and I are brother and sister. This is why I think John would laugh at our modern idea of, I'll have a relationship with God, I don't want anything to do with the church. You've heard that before? Or maybe some of us have believed that or bought into that for a while. Lots of people want to be spiritual and religious, and me and God will connect but I don't want anything to do with organized religion or the hypocrites in the church. I think John would laugh at that. I think John would say, you have no idea what authentic Christianity is, because authentic Christianity is you've been adopted by God. That means you have a relationship with Father, but but that also means you have a relationship with Father's kids. All of Father's kids are now your brothers and sisters. we said this before, right? Would adoption work? Would a child who's being adopted into a family, would it work if that child said, I am so thankful, Dad, that you're adopting me and I can't wait to be your son and you to be my father but all your other kids I want nothing to do with? How would adoption work? It couldn't work. Could, could a child come into a family and be adopted and have a great relationship with Dad but want nothing to do with Dad's kids? No. By, by very nature, when you come into adoption, you're given a new father, but you're also given a new family. And you can't have father without his family. You can't have a relationship without the father, without a relationship with the father's children. And so John is going to press this metaphor and continue what we said last week of, okay, here's what it looks like to be a child of God if adoption is real, and this week he's going to say, and here's what it looks like to live in his family. Here's what a child of God looks like. That's 1 to 10. This week he's going to say, and here's what it looks like to be a sibling. Here's what it looks like to be a brother to God's other children, a sister to God's other children. And John says, okay, for that, here's how life in this family works. Here's the nature of our relationships. In verse 10 he had just finished saying, look, if we don't practice righteousness... We have not been born of God, nor if we don't love our brothers. And he picks up on that idea in verse 11. It's the passage that Benu read for us. Let me me have you hear it. Here's what he says. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So John's going to start this passage by saying, okay, here's what family life is going to look like. Here's what sibling life is going to look like. Here's how one Christian ought to treat another Christian. And he says, This is the message we've heard from the beginning. So he wants you to know look, despite what all the counterfeits are saying, remember, John wrote this letter because a bunch of counterfeits from his church left and started believing junk and teaching junk. And despite what they're saying, you already know what authentic Christianity is. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. It's nothing new, it's not a secret, it's not hidden wisdom. It's the message that's been there from the beginning of the scriptures, from the beginning of your Christian life. This is the message we've heard from the beginning love one another. John's going to say, if you're an authentic Christian, listen, that's going to mean you're going to hate something and love something. It's going to mean you hate sin and love people. And you've seen that throughout his letter, right? If we're in the light, we will not walk in darkness. You're going to hate sin and you're going to love people. The counterfeits that had left twisted everything and they loved their sin and they hated other people. And everything John kept seeing among the counterfeits is they loved their sin. They wanted their sin. They walked in their sin. They enjoyed their sin. They loved their sin, but they hated other Christians. And what John is trying to do is he's trying to untangle what they've twisted up and set everything straight again and make it real simple. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We are to love one another. Okay. In order for that to not just be a hallmark card that Christians will pass to one another, how does that work out? What does it look like? How does that play out, right? Because the truth is, especially in our culture, we've all come up in this culture, love means a lot of different things, depending on who you ask, right? We, we say the same word for, I love you to a spouse that we say about hot dogs. I love hot dogs, right? And sometimes we love people like we like hot dogs. And, and we, we, we don't all mean the same thing when we say love, right? We, fall in love and fall out of love. So, so we're convinced love is a feeling. Or if you watch love on TV, if a guy says, I love you, it's immediately code for sex. You immediately know they're going to be sleeping together at some point in the show. Love means very different things in our culture. So what does John mean when he says, this is the message we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What does it look like for us to be siblings in God's family adopted by him. What's that kind of love going to look like? John's going to tell us. But before he does, he's going to tell us what it doesn't look like. He's going to start with the negative example before he goes to the positive one. He's going to say, this is what you should not be like and ought not do before he tells us what we should be like and ought to do. He's going to start by saying, if you're going to be a sibling in God's family, Don't be like this. And the first thing he says is this. If you're going to be in God's family, don't be a sibling like Cain. Look at it. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So here's what John does. He's going to start talking about here's what life in God's family looks like. And he wants to say, first of all, don't be like that first family and that first sibling. Don't be like Cain. What John does is he takes you back. I don't know if you know who Cain is, if if you're familiar with the scriptures or if you're not. John basically takes us back to the very first book of the Bible, the very first family. In fact, the very first human being who was ever born, the first one to come into the world. God had made this man named Adam and his wife Eve and they had the first child ever born on the planet and this was a boy named Cain, the first sibling of the very first family. And John takes us all the way back to Genesis to say, if you're going to be in God's family, don't be a sibling like that first brother. Cain had a younger kid brother named Abel and their story is in Genesis 4. Maybe you know it well. Let me, let me remind you. Let me read you just a few verses from Genesis 4 so you remember these stories. It says about Abel, verse 2, Now Abel, this is the kid brother, was a keeper of sheep, so he's a shepherd, and Cain a worker of the ground, so he's a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So both brothers bring some kind of sacrifice to God. God accepts that of righteous Abel and does not accept that of sinful Cain. Now, the text doesn't tell us why God accepted one and not the other, right? Traditionally, we've explained it as sort of maybe one offered the best and the other not. Maybe one recognized that sin required the shedding of blood and the other thought that was no big deal. Maybe, as Hebrew says, Abel offered his sacrifice in faith. Maybe Cain just went through the motions. We're not sure exactly why, and the text almost doesn't care. Because Genesis 4 isn't interested in why God chose one and the other. Genesis 4 is going to zero in on how he responds. God accepts Abel's and not Cain's, and this is how Cain responds. Verse 5, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will, it not be, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So God sees that Cain's response is that his face falls, and he gets angry. He's full of this envious, jealous rage. He now is growing with hatred for his brother. God sees him and calls him out in his anger and says, Cain, why are you being so angry? And pleads with him and even then says, look, even now, if you do the right thing, you're going to be accepted and calls out to this man to turn from his anger and then says to him, listen, if you won't, sin is sitting at the door and its desire is to master you, but you must master it. And, of course, you know the story to know that it masters him. His response, verse 8, is Cain then spoke to Abel, his brother, and they were in the field, and Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Killed him. In fact, John, in verse 12, when he's talking about it, he says, don't be like Cain, who murdered. the, the The word there is actually butchered. He butchered his kid brother." right, the very first human being born into the world was a murderer. It's a a vivid description of the Bible's commentary on this is what happened when sin came into the world. When when Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin into the world, the very first fruit of their womb, the very first human being born into the planet was a murderer. It's It's a description of what mankind would be like in their sin. And John says, look at that first family and that very first brother. You are not to be, if you're in the family of God, you are not to be a sibling like Cain. Look again at verse 12, right? He says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one, who was of the evil one. You've got to piece that together with what we said last week. In 3 verses 1 to 10, John has already gone through great pains to say, listen, the whole world is one of two spiritual families. Everybody's in one of two spiritual families. There's a diabolical one and a divine one. There's one ruled by one who didn't want to be ruled by God. That's the first created being who didn't want God's rule. That's Satan. That's devil. And he's got a, a family. And then there are those who are ruled by God, and that's God. And and John is saying, from the beginning, don't you see, that Cain showed that he was a part of that other family. Don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one. This idea of John saying, look, you're either a child of God or a child of God's enemy, is not a new idea. It's one that you see playing out from the beginning. It's, It's as old as from the days when Cain butchered Abel. Cain was of the evil one. Abel was of God, and there's been this conflict between the two from that day forward. In fact, I won't go into it now, but if you go back to Genesis, in Genesis 3:15 is when God curses the serpent who had tempted Eve. And in that curse he says, "From this day forward, I will bring enmity between your offspring and her offspring." It, in, in that verse, he's going to later promise Jesus, but I want you to notice that again. He says to the serpent, there's going to be this war, this conflict between your offspring. What's the offspring of the serpent? And that's the idea John's been picking up on, that from the beginning, there's going to be this seed of the serpent, the children of the serpent, those who reflect the serpent. And there are going to be those who reflect Father God. And these two families are going to be in conflict. In fact, they've been in conflict from the day that Cain butchered his brother. And John's point in referring that is what he wants to remind us of next. It's in verse 13, because what that is has an application for us. He, he then transitions to say in verse 13, so in light of that, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. In light of that, in light of the fact that there's been this conflict from the beginning between the children of the evil one and the children of God, don't be surprised, brothers. He's saying brothers as in the other siblings, the other children of God. Don't be surprised, Christians, that the children of the world, the children of the evil one, hates you. Why do they hate you? Well, John had asked that in verse 12. Why did he murder him? And in 12 he says, it wasn't because Abel was wicked but because of his own evil deeds and because his brother's was righteous. There was something about Abel that Cain couldn't stand, couldn't stomach. And it wasn't that Abel was living like a sinner. It was precisely the righteousness of Abel that turned Cain's stomach against him. And John wants us to hear in our day, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. If you take that seriously, I don't know about you, but that's a hard verse to accept. You know why? Because deep down, again, I don't know about you, but me, I've got this desperate need to be liked. I, I need to not just be liked, I need to be loved. In fact, I need you after a conversation with me to think I'm amazing, right? I don't know why you all laughed like that. I need people to think I'm amazing. And then, you know what I think? I think the same stupid thing I see in myself, I see in the church all the time. In fact, I, if I could characterize, I'd say one of the things about our churches in America is we so badly want the world to like us. We wanna fit in so bad. We wanna make sure that everyone thinks that we're cool and we'll do whatever we can to look like everyone else. And, can't, and John is saying, listen, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised, brothers. If, if you're going to live righteous, then this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of God has been going on from the beginning. And if we're going to live righteously in the world and stand for what God stands for, believe what God believes, that's never going to be cool, and it's never going to be popular, and it's never going to be liked. And John's almost saying, you're going to have to deal with that at some point. You're going to have to deal with the fact that you ought not be surprised that the world hates you. I bet Cain accused Abel of acting holier than thou. I bet Cain saw Abel accepted and thought he was such a hypocrite and a phony and a fake. I bet Cain just couldn't stomach goody two-shoes Abel. But at the end of the day, John says it wasn't in Abel. It was Cain's own evil deeds that could not stomach Abel's righteousness. And that envy and that anger and that jealousy produced in him a murderous hatred. Do not be surprised, brothers, children of God, if you look like God, that the world hates you. So John's warning is, don't be surprised if the world looks like you. And his warning is also, and if you're in the family of God, Don't be a sibling like Cain. Now maybe you hear that and you go, okay, just so that I understand this right, John's big word to us is don't murder my brother. Right? That's his big point. If I'm going to be in the family of God, don't murder other Christians. And you go, how hard is that? That's what John is building up to? And I want you to hear, that's exactly right. That's all he's saying. Don't murder other Christians. If you're in the family of God, don't murder other Christians. Don't be a murderer. The only thing is what he defines as murder. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him that's it that's all john's saying but he's saying if you hate that's murder now this is an original john john is just literally parroting what he heard his best friend jesus say in fact jesus in matthew 5 was speaking on this what's called the sermon on the mount and he says to a bunch of religious church-going people he says to them i tell you you've heard it said that if you commit murder, you will be in danger of judgment. And everybody sat just like we sat and go, how hard is that? Don't murder, no problem, right? In fact, that's what, that exactly was what made them feel righteous. We would never murder someone. That's what made them feel like they were better than everybody else. Of course, Jesus, that has to be the easiest commandment to keep. And then Jesus follows, I'll just read a few, you can hear it. Matthew 5, but I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, to his brother will be liable to the hell of fire. And here's what Jesus and John are both saying John and Jesus are both saying it's not just what you do with your hands, the point is, is this thing already rooted in your heart? And here's what I want to say just as clearly as I can. John is saying, if you consistently hate another Christian, the same seed that was in Cain is in your heart as well. If you consistently hate another Christian, the same seed of murderous, angry hatred that was in Cain's heart, John says, is in your heart as well. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murder has eternal life in him, John says. In fact, John says hatred or love, that's the test. This is how verse 14, we know if we have crossed over from death to life or if through hatred we still remain in death. That's the test. If you're going to be in God's family, don't be a sibling like Cain. Having given us the negative example of what we ought not do and what ought we not be like, John finishes this passage by giving us the positive example. What ought we then to do? What does loving one another look like? How is family life among siblings in God's family supposed to look like? Who should we be like? And he tells us in verse 16. Here's the second and last thing John says. If you are going to be in the family of God, then be a sibling like Jesus. If you are going to be in the family of God, then be a sibling like Jesus. Be a brother like Jesus. Remember, if you carry on the adoption analogy, then God the Father adopted us through his son Jesus. You know what that makes Jesus? Jesus is like our brother In fact, the scriptures tell us in Hebrews that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren, his brothers. So just as we look to the father as our father, we look to the son as our elder brother. And Jesus is a picture of what we are to be like. What John's saying is, don't be like the older brother Cain. Be like the older brother Jesus. If you're going to be in God's family, be a sibling like Jesus. And what's that look like? Verse 16 By this we know love. We've been asking John, John, tell us what what love looks like. And he says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Before I make a comment on that, I want you to just notice one thing. Notice that he doesn't contrast between Cain and Abel, right? Right? If you're writing in literature, that would make a nice tighter contrast, right? Here's Cain who was of the evil one. Here's Abel who was of God. Why doesn't he say, if you're going to be a sibling in God's family, don't be like Cain, be like Abel? And you might go, no duh, because Jesus is better than Abel. And, and that's exactly right. Very simple. But I want you to hear what you just said or what you thought. Jesus is better than able. In fact, it's not just that. It's not that Jesus is just better than able. It's that Jesus is the better able. That sounds so similar. Let me just say that again. This contrast comes not just because Jesus is better than able. It's because Jesus is the better able. Jesus is the true and better able. You see, everything in the Old Testament, that those 39 books had one singular Purpose above all, which was to get you ready for and point you towards Jesus. That's what the whole books were doing. Everything in it was getting you ready for Jesus. So every character, right? When when you read of the story of Isaac, here is this beloved son who climbs up a mountain and the father is going to offer him as a sacrifice and slaughter him. What's that doing? That's getting you ready because at the last minute that son is spared and the promise comes, another will take the place on this mountain. And all that's doing is getting you ready for another beloved son who would come from the father and climb up the mountain and at the last minute not be spared but slain for us all. Or, or you read of the sacrificial system and you go, okay, here's this innocent lamb who's blameless and pure and perfect in every way and guilty people will come and lay their hands on it and slay it, and their sin will be transferred to this innocent being. And what's that getting you ready for? All the blood of the bulls and the goats and the lambs was getting you ready for John 1, which says, Behold the Lamb of God, Jesus, who would come, who is blameless and perfect and pure, and the guilty would lay hold of him and slay him, and through his blood they would be forgiven. In the same way, Abel was getting you ready for the true Abel. The better Abel. In every way, Jesus is the true and better Abel. I-, I want you to consider it. Abel was murdered. But verse 16 just told us, Jesus, the true and better Abel, laid down his life. He wasn't murdered. He, he-, he wasn't, it wasn't against his will. He laid down his life for us. Abel's blood, if you go back to, to Genesis 4, Cain comes back after slaughtering, butchering his brother, and God calls out to him and he says, what have you done? Cain lies about the whole thing and he says, your brother's blood is crying out to me. His brother's blood was crying out for justice against his murderer. But Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So I want you to think of this. Abel is slaughtered and his blood cries out justice against his murderer. And yet Jesus is slaughtered and his blood blood cries out mercy for his murderers. God heard the blood of Abel crying out for justice, but the better and true Abel's blood cried out mercy for the ones who murdered him. Cain, because he murdered Abel, was banished and sent out. But the true and better Abel dies, and what happens? His murderers are adopted and brought in. In every way. Innocent, righteous Abel was murdered by his brother. His blood cried out for justice, and Cain was banished and sent out. Innocent, righteous Jesus the true and better Abel laid down his life and his blood cried out mercy for his murderers and adopted us and brought us in. The contrast is not just because Jesus is better than Abel, it's because he is the true and better Abel. And if you're going to be in the family of God, you ought to be a sibling like the better Abel. You ought to be a sibling like Jesus. And let me say this quickly, and then we'll be done. What does that look like? Verse 16, hear it again. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What is family life supposed to look like? Love, not just love, sacrificial love, self-giving love, generous love. The kind of love Jesus had for us is the kind of love we're supposed to demonstrate to one another. We give of ourselves. We give of our stuff. We give sacrificially, selflessly, generously to one another. Not just to God, to one another, as he has given to us. Unless you think that's just more religious talk. Because that's what we'll do. We'll take these verses too and go on talking about how we should love everybody in the church. John follows it up with a very concrete example so that you don't just make this a bunch of talk. Just hear it and then we'll be done. Verse 17 and 18 gives you an example. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Would you let, even as you go from today, would you let verses 17 and 18 just sit on your heart throughout the day? Would you please just let it sit on your heart? Because John's saying, in God's family, if we're going to be siblings, we're not just going to talk about loving one another. Not even just going to talk about loving like Jesus loved. Brothers, if you see another brother in need and you have the world's goods, you have something they need and you close your heart to them, how are you in the family? If you love your stuff and your money and your possessions more than you love a brother, how are you in the family? How does God's love abide in you? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deeds and in truth. Even among the counterfeits who had left John's church, there was no shortage of talk. They were always professing, professing to know God, professing to love one another. And John says, no, if you're an authentic Christian, then this love is going to be demonstrated in visible, tangible, practical, real ways. You're going to demonstrate love in deeds and in truth. Not just talk about loving everybody, actually loving somebody. So, if you see a brother in need, and that means we've got to be family enough to know one another and one another's needs. If you see a family who's lost a job and is in need, a family that just had a baby and is in need, a college student that needs to help to finish the last semester and buy textbooks, whatever it may be, if you see a brother in need, that's where the test comes. If you have the world's goods... If you have the world's goods and close your heart to your brother in need, how does God's love abide in you? Even this week, I want to say as just one practical word of application for us, Hurricane Sandy presents to us an opportunity to obey verse 16 and 17. So have your eyes open, hearts open, hands open, wallets open, Homes open, tables open, beds open to see how God might want you to obey 1 John 3, verses 16 and 17. Because if we're in the family of God, we're going to love like Jesus did and thank the Lord. He didn't just stay in heaven and talk about loving us a lot. If we are going to be in the family of God, we ought to be a sibling that is not like Cain, but like our older brother Jesus. May the Lord himself give us opportunity and a heart to obey his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask you together to bring about deep conviction to our hearts and that the Holy Spirit himself might sit on our hearts with a great and what almost feels like crushing weight as we consider whether or not we truly love one another. As we consider whether or not we've been allowing hatred to grow so that the same seed that was in the heart of Cain is in our hearts as well. And would you expel such things from our hearts through the love of Christ who gave his life, who is the better and true able. As we consider the better and true able, we will have ourselves the resources to rid our hearts of hate. And likewise, would you make us a generous, sacrificial, self-giving people who in tangible, physical, visible, real, actual ways demonstrate love for one another, for your family. Give us opportunity to do so. Give us resources to do so. Give us motivation and means to do so. I would even ask as a prayer from all of us, in this week and in the coming weeks, let many good deeds be done in the name of Jesus because of obedience to your word in 1 John chapter 3. Hear our prayer. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen.